0: Okay, so let me welcome all of you uh, to um, the first of four seminars that will deal with the World Development Report. Well, this will deal with the economization uh, of health. Um, I will be uh, introducing the speakers uh, Jean-Paul Godelier will be handling the um, question period uh, after the talks. Uh, I would like to ask you, we would like to ask you to send in your, to put, to type in your questions on chat. Um, uh, a lot of experience we've learned that questions seem to be a lot shorter and a lot more targeted uh, when they're written down than uh, when they're oral. Uh, I should also let everybody know that this session is being recorded. Uh, Both speakers have have, have agreed to recording the session. So this is going to be part of the historical uh, record. Um, Let me also mention that the second session has already uh, been set. Uh, It'll be about the World Bank and its role in global health with Jean-Paul and Marley uh, Tishner. Uh, Papers will be pre-circulated. We haven't really decided on the mechanism of that, but what will probably happen is we will send you a request to register for the meeting, and anyone who registers for the meeting will receive uh, the texts uh, of the papers. Okay, so on that note, let me get out of the share um, and introduce the speakers. Um, Our first speaker is a very familiar name to anybody who has worked uh, in the history of global health. Dean Jameson uh, is Edward A. Clarkson, Professor Emeritus at the Institute for Global Health Science at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, He has taught at Harvard and UCLA and was an economist uh, on the staff of the World Bank where he was the lead author uh, of the the work that we're going to be discussing today, the World Development Report. Um, He's been leading or co-author of many key uh, global health publications, most notably uh, Disease Control Priorities in Developing Countries, which was first published in 1993. Uh, a second edition in 2006, and a multi-volume third edition published between 2015, 2015 and I think 2017 uh, the, uh, was the last one as far as I know. Um, I should also point out that he, uh, he was the lead author of the ad hoc uh, of the report of the ad hoc committee on health research in 1996, which was a major influence in the reconfiguration uh, of uh, uh, global health research institutions around the turn uh, of of the century. Um, uh, He recently served as co-chair and study director of the Lancet Commission uh, on Investing in Health. Okay, so um, what I will do now is ask uh, Dean To start, and I will try to handle his.
1: That is what we're talking about today. I had a um, large panel on my wall for many years that had this cover in nine languages. Um, It was too big to lug around, so unfortunately, I don't have it anymore. I wish I did. So, this was available uh, in nine languages. So, um, let me just uh, speak without slides for the next uh, 15, uh, 20 minutes. So take that off, George, please. Um, so I, I'm taking at this series of uh, talks on economization in health. We'll have at least one more discussion next, next time on World Bank issues in health and uh, relations to WHO. And so I'll begin part of that. Uh, discussion, maybe even introduce it uh, now, Um, but many, many years ago when uh, Robert McNamara was president of the World Bank, he had uh, very strong feelings about the importance of population control, and there was a population department created within the bank to provide financial support projects uh, to countries in the population area, and they had a steady record of projects which was two this year and four next year. That went on for about uh, 10 years. They never quite got to the four and the department became um, a little bit of a black sheep in the bank. Um, Senior management of the bank um, in the um, early 80s probably, um, decided to broaden the mandate to include health and nutrition and brought in a new director, John Evans, Task with doing that. So um, long before the WDR 1993, uh, the bank had decided that um, a lending program and a credit program in health was worth um, worth doing, and it it was solidly established in the bank, but not not a large program in terms of money as the bank. uh, bank was at that time. The bank's uh, research group is led by a chief economist, who vice president chief economist, who also serves as the economic advisor to the president of the bank. And one of the annual responsibilities of uh, the chief economist is to uh, suggest topics for each year's World Development Report and then to uh, supervise the process of getting it written, more or less, on time. Um, and at the World Bank uh, at the time, uh, by the time I'm talking about late 80s or early 90s, was a um, full-fledged uh, participant, I'd say, in the Washington Consensus Uh, by Washington, people mean different things by that, but it's typically a limited government approach uh, to development, an approach that uh, favors uh, relatively free trade and capital movement, uh, and um, care with the size of government budgets. Uh, We're not seeing that, haven't seen much of that for a long time, but it was pretty much the dominant uh, View among many economists, academics, and officials in institutions like uh, reserve banks around the world, uh, treasury ministries around the world, the IMF, and the World Bank. Uh, So, and there were a couple of world development reports, I think in 1989 and 90 or 90 and 91, that were uh, quite influential, I think, looking back at them. And I thought at the time, still think that they were quite good reports. Uh, One was on uh, how to deal with poverty in the context of the um, um, Washington Consensus. And the second was a broader look at um, the Washington Consensus and how its policies would lead to more rapid and more inclusive growth. So those two documents I think uh, represent a strong statement of the role of very limited government in the development process and how you can achieve development goals, how you they argued would best achieve development goals with limited government. Uh, Larry Summers then became the chief economist in um 1991, he was an academic economist, um, um, quite successful uh, academic economist, uh, known at the time and known later for his uh, abrasiveness and uh, occasionally um, um, unpopular views on various uh, topics, and I'll, I'll turn to one of those in, in just a moment. Um, Summers was um, a Democrat, served as Secretary of the US Treasury under Clinton and um, Chief Economic Advisor to Barack Obama for his first two years. So he's a prominent Democrat, but a very conservative Democrat, which has actually cost him positions from time to time because of opposition from the left uh, side of the party. So he's on the right side of the party and very much, I'd say, a believer uh, in market approaches to most everything. So I ended up um, working closely with him, as did Abdo, for the better part of a year. And my take on him was one that um, I think is reflected in the, if you wish, ideological uh, direction that the WDR 93 took. Uh, his view, I would argue, of the value of markets was a coldly instrumental and practical view. He didn't care, as far as I could see, anything at all about markets per se. He thought for many, not all purposes of development, markets work best. And that sounds, of course, very sensible, but I I don't know how many of you are economists, but I can assure you there's quite a lot of economists who take a very different view, that a very decentralized, pro-market, consumer sovereignty view is good in and of itself. Now, they wouldn't tell you that, but that is clearly, as far as I can see, the way they behave. And that becomes hard to argue with and a strong element of where we were. Uh, what Larry decided to do um, in the aftermath of these two very market-oriented WDRs was uh, put in place a series of three WDRs that looked at, areas where the uh, role of the state was, and should be uh, clearly highly central. And so the sequence of three began with the WDR on the environment. Uh, Second was WDR 93 on health. And the third of the series, WDR 94, was on physical uh, infrastructure. And so his intent was to Um, balance the um, pro-market perspective that had been emerging from the bank, or at least that's how I would read his intent. Um, Summers, I learned when I was interviewing for the job of uh, director of the WDR, is, um, is a technocrat, in the sense that he's highly interested in specific things like Epidemiology and uh, uh, diseases and disease control measures, and not all economists are. I had a my job interview. Uh, I was living on the west coast at the time. He'd scheduled me for an hour at his house in Northwest Washington uh, uh, on a Saturday morning. So I showed up, and we ended up speaking for three hours about many different things. Uh, but it was typical of him once he gets engaged in a technical point he doesn't want to leave it for quite a while. Um, We concluded that he concluded that meeting with my homework assignment for the next day and what he said was, Dean, I assume you already have three conclusions in your mind about what this report would say if, uh, if I asked you to be director. Um, I'll let you think about that, I'll let you think about that for a day, and tell me tomorrow, write to me tomorrow, about what your three uh, main conclusions were. So I'll turn back to that in just a moment, but that led us into health policy, at least as it's discussed in the United States, it's a settled issue in most other places. But that's about universal health coverage. and universal health coverage was in no sense um, a dominant or even barely an acceptable view in the World Bank in the early 1990s it was cost recovery um, then uh, mechanisms for dealing with the poor subsidies for the poor or other things um, like that universal health coverage has the characteristic if to put it in a slightly pejorative way of um, having this coercive power of the state be used to deny individual citizens the right to be uninsured. Now that puts it in a negative way, but that's what the word universal means. And that concept, even more softly put, was anathema to a large number of um, Economists in the World Bank and much more broadly, even though by then, obviously, completely accepted concept in most high income countries. Um, So uh, we dealt with um, that for many months. And uh, Summer's initial position, initial predilection, was to find that coercive role of the state um, undesirable. But I'd say within a few months, um, that was behind us and he was um, fully aboard. So there are questions of uh, basic packages and health benefits packages that are very much on the agenda today. Uh, so those issues were settled. Um, there was um, one other major thing that leads, um, led George to the um, WHO report on um, health r and priorities uh, later in the decade. Um, so I had had these three messages, which more or less carried through. Um, and Summers, um, most of the way through the effort, uh, took a position in the, in the Clinton administration, the new Clinton administration's uh, treasury department. Um, and we had a, a acting vice president for a while then a new vice president. The new vice president was a complete macroeconomist who had some interest in health, but no serious interest in economics of health or agriculture education, but a smart and interesting guy. Anyway, he essentially repeated what Summers um, had asked me to start with. He says, "I, I assume that you probably had Um, your main thoughts about how this report would unfold uh, early in the process. So don't bother to summarize those for me. What I want to know is what conclusion did you come to that you did not go in to your year's work uh, holding? And that uh, certainly was an unexpected and I thought interesting question, but it had a very, very easy answer. And the answer was around the absolutely essential role of advances in science and technology, in medicines, diagnostics, vaccines, epidemiological knowledge, that all of those factors were basically what drove um, the huge transformation of human health that had been taking place in the 20th century particularly in the second half of the 20th century. It wasn't better markets. It wasn't higher income even. It was only a little bit better education levels in the population. It was adoption of the fruits of technology. Um, so anyway, that was one thing that I came away with and something I, I still believe uh, quite strongly, but that I hadn't started with. And working with WHO on that led to further uh, Analyses uh, since that conclusion was late in the World Development Report process didn't figure too prominently. It figured, but not prominently, in what we wrote. Um, so, in collaboration with WHO, we returned uh, much more substantially to those questions later. So, it's a, it's a long set of uh, issues that are very interesting to me, but I think not um, not directly relevant to where we are um, with the World Development Report. So by the time we were then well into writing it, the basic um, question uh, that um, Summers had um, come around on, the um, basic agreement that a main message of the report would be uh, universal coverage, perhaps the package of interventions to be universally publicly financed would be limited. Certainly the question of what should be in that package was then and remains a uh, subject of, of much discussion. But on the topic of what should be in the package, um, we had been working well before Summers joined the World Bank on what became uh, known as the Disease Control Priorities Project. Again, I, I, I spent a lot, lot of my life in a bureaucracy as a bureaucrat. Remember, my sister's an academic at Johns Hopkins, and she's quite a pure academic. And uh, the Economist had written after the World Development Report was published, uh, words to the effect that it was a, a good report, um, and uh, even bureaucrats could make a difference was what the economist <laughs> said. So I was pleased. I, I thought that was nice coming from the economist. My sister was um, quite uh, outraged. But um, the question of what to include in the package, to me, not quite a bureaucratic question, but very much a technocratic question. How for a given amount of money for a million dollars, what's the most you can get uh, in terms of whatever your objectives are, but basically objectives of either reducing mortality or improving health more generally, how much can you get for a million dollars? And that question had been on my mind for a long time and had led to the first disease control priorities project because of the tension between uh, interventions to address cancer, and heart disease, stroke, chronic lung disease, the non-communicable diseases, psychiatric disorders, and those that addressed uh, infectious disease, particularly infectious disease of childhood, but also at the time, uh, the emergence of AIDS uh, on the world scene. Um, And I had begun my work on health working in China where the NCD agenda uh, in 1990 was already uh, a prominent uh, part of the work, and so my, uh, one of my objectives in this um, exercise of looking at priorities was to really assess where, given the extremely powerful and inexpensive interventions that exist for dealing with many infections, certainly most of the infections of childhood, um, under what circumstances and why, uh, what interventions against NCDs make a difference. So we, this um, project um, on disease control priorities uh, reflected uh, an attempt to answer that question in a systematic way and to answer that question of, uh, in the context of um, ex- very focused attention at, among my bosses. I was the head of the bank's uh, uh, health policy group at the time, uh, I was instructed to spend all my time on AIDS. And I personally thought that was just really wrong. So, this disease control priorities uh, was in a way a bureaucratic response to my bosses to kind of deflect them uh, from pushing me quite so hard on spending all my resources on AIDS. So, we had a lot of work done by 1992 pretty well ready to publish it. And the World Development Report uh, of three was able to take advantage of um, the homework that had been done, if you wish, on um, um, priorities uh, that reflected mostly cost-effectiveness uh, but also to a lesser extent, um, probably to little extent, the financial protection of populations from uh, expenditures associated with uh, Um, illness and um, the um, broader questions of um, how to deal with uh, the concerns, political concerns of trying to um, provide everything for everybody as opposed to a more constrained Set of things that could actually uh, be uh, financed. So um, we tried then to um, develop a package that was reflected the both the needs of countries and the priorities of dollar value of mortality value per dollar spent, and that lead to, led to work on the. Uh, burden of disease. Mm. So the World Development Report 1993 uh, developed the first set of estimates of the global burden of disease um, in collaboration with WHO and WHO did collaborate closely uh, with WDR 93. There was an assistant director general, Jean-Paul Jardel, uh, who was um, assigned to um, worked with us and um, and he provided a great deal of WHO resources uh, in support of uh, WDR 93. But one major uh, input that they provided was uh, a a lot of technical information on assessing the burden of disease. And the technical issue there was uh, a technical and political issue If you looked at uh, the WHO numbers on deaths by cause, major infectious diseases in developing countries or all diseases in developing countries, they would tend to have a list of 10 or so things, but they wouldn't have a total at the bottom of the list. And the lack of a total reflected um, a great deal of internal dissension among the disease programs about whose program was most important. And if my disease, malaria killed two and a half million people a year, and your disease um, acute respiratory infections uh, only killed 1.2, then um, you're not, uh, not as deserving of your training budget. I and mean, you can see how that goes and it's perfectly perfectly human and perfectly natural. Um, So if you actually went around to the programs in WHO and wrote down, let's say, the causes of under five deaths uh, by program, uh, as reported to you by program, literally you would get a number when you added all those totals up. that was about twice the total number of under five deaths as um, calculated by the demographers uh, so that they weren't fitting into the envelope. So a major objective and a major contribution of WHO to our work um, WBR 93 uh, was uh, to try to get an assessment of the burden of disease that um, lived within the total death envelopes uh, that uh, the demographers uh, provided us. And then in addition to that, so Alan Lopez was uh, the WHO official at the time who had been thinking about those questions for a long time and worked closely with us then to come up with these estimates of deaths by cause, by region that were completely consistent with each other in terms of uh, demographic uh, totals. Uh, Chris Murray, uh, we asked to add on um, disability information so that it was a burden of disease being assessed, not just a burden of mortality being assessed. Um, Actually, George, if you could put up uh, the next slide um, briefly which is the first uh, report of the global burden of disease. One of the things that WHO uh, did. Uh, so, yeah. So this uh, is a paper in the bulletin of WHO, and mm-hmm. at the end of. Um, their collaboration with WDR 93. I'm making it sound very good and it was mostly very good, but of course there were tensions uh, from time to time. Um, But Dr. Chardell devoted a special issue of the Bulletin of the World Health Organization to background papers prepared uh, for WDR 93. And so this uh, paper was one that reported on the global burden of disease um, estimated in 1990. Um, I actually revisited some of our numbers much later in Commission on Investing in Health to see what um, in the year 2012 or 2013, if you re-estimated in light of all of what you knew uh, in 2012, if you re-estimated the burden of disease in 1990, how close would you come to what we actually estimated in the WDR and then in a slightly more extensive form in this long paper. And we actually didn't do too badly. There were one or two maternal deaths was way off. But mostly we were um, fairly, uh, looking back on it, got it, right is not the word, but whatever came later ended up being fairly consistent with what we did then. I think it was more or less right. so there was that and um, seven or eight or nine other background papers that WHO published uh, in the bulletin. Um, so that's that's enough for that slide, George. Yes. Take it down. Um, so um, we looked at the burden of disease, we looked at cost effectiveness, we tried to put this together in a, a larger picture that reflected um, this universalism concept, even if it was around ultimately, in one sense, a fairly limited set of interventions, um, two sets of interventions that we looked at, one for low-income countries, one for lower-middle-income countries, more expansive set. Um, But um, even though it didn't cover all that much in some sense, it still was expensive. Probably Abdo has a much better sense of this than I do, but uh, when people later at the World Bank, WHO, tried to help countries implement a package like that if they were interested, uh, the dollar values were, were pretty high. So um, we then published this report, and let me just finish with uh, my, my thoughts on how we got into it and first uh, sense of reaction, but what I thought the report had done uh, in a broad sense was two things. One, it was a a distinctly technocratic report. It talked about diseases, it talked about immunization programs, it talked about drugs, Uh, it talked about specific epidemiological issues. Uh, It talked about what we would today called non-pharmacological interventions against AIDS. We talked about that at some length because we didn't have the drugs at that time uh, for AIDS. Um, So it's very much more technocratic than the World Bank is at all inclined um, to uh, generally deal, uh, generally deals more with issues like decentralization, management, uh, implementation, training, kind of um, the systemic issues, which are obviously very important, relative to the technical issues around what the systems uh, should do. So that was one distinctive feature of WDR 93, as I saw it, that put it uh, intellectually in a way much closer uh, to Geneva, much closer to WHO than to many um, of my colleagues in the bank. And the second was to return to this central question of um, health policy, do you have to impose the finance of universal health coverage on population? And we were clear about that 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 was positive. That was still not a story that the bank was um, uniformly willing to to buy into. Um, but uh, what I felt was that we had produced um, a center left report in a center-right institution, and um, you, know, you will perhaps have very different views than mine, but that that center-left character of the report, I had hoped would make it um, acceptable um, outside the bank, and it was in some places and certainly was not, as perhaps some of you know, in other places. and it. The same within the bank. There was acceptance in some circles, uh, rejection in other circles. Uh, And um, that was, uh, I would say, it was was not a neutral response. There tended to be people inside the bank and outside the bank who quite liked the report. And there were quite a few people who didn't like it at all. And those communities, to me, ended up, interestingly, the pretty far-right community, and pretty far left communities were the communities that really didn't like the report as I read it, uh, as I read the politics I read afterward. Um, so that um, perhaps is uh, too long an introduction to how we got to 93. And uh, Abda, you might have further reflections on the process of uh, and, and content messages of the report, as well as uh, beginning to reflect on
0: what happened afterward. Okay, we're gonna come back to Dean um, in a moment, but first let me introduce Abdel Yazbek, who's a leading um, health and labor economist who spent spent 22 years at the World Bank where he managed uh, various regional uh, health programs. Um, He's an associate editor of the journal of Health Systems and Reform, uh, and is on the faculty of Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, He has authored seven books and edited five journal issues and is currently working uh, as an independent consultant. Um,
2: Abdo. Thank you very much. Um, I was so worried about joining a panel with Dean Jamieson. it's almost impossible to follow Dean. So um, that's a hard one. I apologize for that. Um, but I will offer something, um, I think, complementary. Dean can give you the real story from a 30,000 foot uh, elevation that gives you the big picture. What I can do is much more on the ground, uh, specifically in terms of the follow-up. How did the WDR 93 um get used operationally and what are the potential legacies to that? Um, Let me see how I can change the slides. Here we go. Um, So I have a couple of slides, only 10 slides. Um, A Little bit about um, my take on why the World Bank did a report on health in 1993, slightly different than Dean's. Three of my favorite uh, charts, graphs, I call this memory lane, uh, just to give you a sense on some of the things I worked on. um, A little bit about the operational legacy, actually that's the the part you're interested in. uh, With a focus on one specific example, I spent seven years working on Bangladesh, including two intense years on a project that applied WDR. It gives you a sense of what happened in many countries. Um, And I'll close with a couple of slides on potential legacies um, in terms of what happened after WDR. Dean gave a fantastic story as to why the chief economist at the time, um, um, in a way, in an ideological way, um, wanted a WDR on um, um, on on health, and that was wonderful for me to learn. I did not know this. Um, a few years ago, I started a project on my own called Health and the Economy, and part of it was to actually understand health as it went through from the 60s to 2015 at that point, in terms of um, where it plays, how it plays. And I looked at the World Bank data because all World Bank data, all World Bank publications are available to everybody. We call it the sunshine rule. No bank document or database is ever uh, meant to be kept from others. So it's fantastic. Anybody can get access to it. So the two charts you have in front of you are charts that on the left is health projects, that is, projects that the World Bank uh, identified and funded for health. And on the right, which is the more important one, the amount of money in millions that went from the bank to focus mm-hmm. on health. Notice where the World Development Report 93 was initiated, in that green bar. It was initiated at a time where health was starting to show up as a reasonably substantial part of the bank portfolio. And in many ways, bank staff, bank operations needed to know what the hell to do with health because the history of the World Bank, who people do not, may not know, the World Bank was started as a post-World War II institution. It was called IBRD, International Bank Reconstruction and Development. And it was developed to rebuild Europe and parts of Asia uh, after World War II. Once that job is done, it recreated itself as a premier development agency, but it kept the reconstruction part, the construction part of that. So it was focused only on physical infrastructure and that is building things, building roads, building dams. Uh, Subway in Tokyo was after the World War II, but then other major investment physical projects. And something was happening in the 60s in the sense that development thinkers were thinking, maybe economic development or development role is not just about physical, maybe there's a human dimension. And that's where the social sector started. And Dean mentioned population was our uh, entryway drug for the World Bank. Uh, Education and education were actually, education and population were the two first sectors. And Dean will remember The unit he used to be in charge of was used to be called PHN, population health and nutrition. So it started as population and eventually it became moved into population health and nutrition. And as you can see from the chart, health was starting to become an issue. And therefore having a world development report on health gave bank staff a little bit more of the what does the science, what does the research tell us and what can we do? And I'll turn to that when I get to my slides in terms of the operation. So these are two of my three favorite slides from the World Development Report. These two were initiated by a certain Dean Jameson, who came to me and said, Abdo, I'd like you to repeat, the first one to the left is a version of what's called the Preston Curve. The Preston Curve is a fantastic correlation uh, which links on the vertical a measure of health outcomes in this case life expectancy on the horizontal, uh, the level of economic development of a country per capita income. And what the Preston curve shows is a correlation and please keep the word correlation in mind because it has been misinterpreted by economists for a long time. So a correlation means things are happening at the same time but it has been interpreted as, as the economy grows health improves. In fact, I have shown in a paper I wrote recently, that the relationship is actually health outcomes produce improved economy, not the other way around. But that's not the topic of this presentation. At that time, the the relationship was strong. And Dean asked me, can I repeat the Preston curve updated, but can I do it over a 30 year period of increments? So I was able to get data from 1900s, 1930, 1960, 1999, 1990. And Dean, maybe we wanna do 2020, what do you think? Um, To look at what happens to the Preston curve every 30 years. And I loved what came out of this because it maintained the shape. It told us there is a correlation. There's quite a bit of variability around this correlation, but it showed this fantastic shift. Now, I believe Dean interpreted this in the text to say This is the result of improved technology. This is the result of new findings in public health in medicine that allowed us at the same levels of development to have improved health outcomes. The chart to the right is one of my favorite and one that took a lot of energy to get it done. Dean was very interested to go beyond uh, the Preston curve. He said, can we go further? Can we control for a couple of things per capita income but maybe for education stock. And Dean shared with me a database the World Bank had produced the education group that actually had education stock, not levels, but stock. And so using that working with a a demographer and the team, uh, fantastic guy uh, named Ken Hill, uh, we were able to control for these two variables and say, okay, and so what you see on the chart on the left-hand side on the vertical is what is the current health outcome in this case, life expectancy different from what you would expect it to be given the per capita income of the country and given the education stock. So anything above the zero line means a country is overachieving relative to level of income and educational stock. And I love this chart. Then Dean made it a little bit more complicated, said, can you do the same, but for per capita spending on health? Now we all expected a a linear or at least a relationship that went from worst outcome, lower expenditure to better outcome, higher expenditure. And what we got was this crazy scatter graph, which unfortunately again was misinterpreted by economists at the bank and elsewhere. Um, I see it as an important message that says more important than spending money, it's how you spend the money. Unfortunately, right oriented health economist, not the health economist, economist saw it as show, show saw it as proof that actually spending doesn't matter, which is not true. This is overall spending. Anyway, those are two ch- fun charts memory lane for me. This one is the big one. And this is the one mm. it's, it's, it's sort of a, a wonderful chart because it reminds me of two people we lost. Um, And so this was the brainchild of our colleague, Phil Musgrove who passed away some years ago on a boat in Iguazu Falls, but also reflects a conversation Phil, myself and Jose Luis Bobadilla had uh, a few days before we produced this chart. Jose Luis was a fantastic uh, physician health specialist who also passed away unfortunately in an airplane crash. Uh, also in Latin America. And what Jose Luis was saying is he was so worried that uh, people will misinterpret this data. And what is this data? This is what Dean was talking about. The results of uh, the work he was doing with his colleagues on the disease control, which started to capture the return to different spending. So um, what is it the cost effective uh, outcome of of investment of a dollar or $10 in terms of disability adjusted life year. And so this was an attempt at uh, measuring the return to a certain investment. And the reason this was important to us and the reason why Phil Musgrove was very concerned that this would be misinterpreted, and unfortunately it was misinterpreted, is I underlined uh, two words on each scale, which is the log scale. Unfortunately, to be able to fit this into a graph, we needed to do a log scale. And Phil was very concerned that people will not understand what that meant. So we added the stuff on the right. This is a dollar for DALI. So this is buying a disability adjusted life year by spending a dollar versus $10 per DALI versus $100 per DALI versus $1,000 per DALI worth is $10,000. So each line represents an order of magnitude difference. And the point here is that if you're gonna be spending money on health, shouldn't we be focusing on getting the most return to outcome? And I'll come back to that in a minute, Um, but let me keep going. so this was the point of this chart was to tell us there are some things that are obviously highly cost effective there're certain things that are obviously highly cost ineffective but our concern was this is not accurate data we were worried jose luis was worried that harvard university will be running around with a black box with data and says, okay, so how much should the country spend? This is how much money you have. These are the 20 interventions you should spend. Unfortunately, he was correct. And Harvard University did that for a number of years. And this continued, unfortunately. So what are the operational legacies? I'm gonna talk about the two sort of big uh, pieces that in my view were extremely important and heavily impacted the World Bank and other agencies afterwards. One was a measurement issue. Um, And the idea was, as Dean mentioned, up to this point, our focus had been on um, mortality and um, there was a a need to define the enemy. And in this case, the enemy was um, burden of disease and Importantly, it was important to understand what can we do about that enemy? So the cost-effectiveness data allowed us to say, okay, this may be a big enemy, but we don't have interventions that are cost-effective. And so it allowed us to think more about defining the enemy and defining what we can do about it. Bringing that kind of a measurement made a big, big difference. The second line is really the big, big legacy. The World Bank after that and many other agencies after that focused on the idea of a package of services, making budget choices much more explicit, in my view, much more ethical. Because before this became the operational instrument, we honestly did not have a way of helping countries think through choices and implication of choices in terms of budgets. And this is a huge legacy I'm happy to talk about later if you want. Two additional legacies. Um, It was a consolidation of a shift away from infrastructure. I mentioned in a minute, Mm -hmm. minute ago that the bank was a reconstruction bank. So it was mostly physical infrastructure. And so the first instinct in education was to build schools. The first instinct in health is to build hospitals. I call these things white elephants. If you want in the Q and A, I can tell you wh- where the expression white elephant came from. Fantastic explanation that like all good stories come from India. And, and so, but what the WDR allowed us to do was think of investments in health and projects in health. I'm gonna show you an example in a second that doesn't look about building things, but looks about spending, looks at, looks at decisions within a health system to make a difference in people's lives. And the second part of that is something I've lived for 28 years. I spent most of my time in development as the go-between between between the Ministry of Finance or Treasury and the Ministry of Health. And it's mostly over budget discussions. And what WDR 93 and the approach relating to cost-effectiveness gave us is a joint language between Treasury and Health. Mm -hmm. See, Treasury thinks in terms of investments and return to investments, health doesn't think that way. And this was an attempt to bring that language together. And finally, and Dean may wanna talk about this, an interesting legacy of WDR 93 is that it led to the Gates Foundation focus on health. When Dean is not sharing stage with me, I take full credit for this. And I say it's because of my work on WDR 93 that the Gates Foundation decided on health but Dean has a better story than I and actually a truthful story in terms of that. Let me turn next to a specific example just to ground it into the reality. So I I left the bank after WDR 93 to work as an independent consultant or as a consultant for USAID project. And, And after that I was recruited back to the World Bank in 96 specifically to apply WDR 93 to a huge project in Bangladesh. Bangladesh at that point had had 20 years of support from the World Bank on population and health, and they wanted to apply WDR 93. So this led to a project, the fifth project, which was 14 donors and lenders, a five-year project with the government spending came up to $2.9 billion. Don't get too excited. $2.9 billion for five years for a population of 130 million comes out to $3.5 per capita per year. And this was what Dean mentioned earlier. The cheapest package we costed in WDR 93, Peter Cowley and colleagues, was $12 per capita. And here's Bangladesh with all the donor money coming in. And the best we could do was $3.5 per capita. And this was the fun part of the operational. How do we cut a $12 $12 package to 3.5? And I, 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 I documented this in a paper called An Idiot's Guide to prioritization in the health sector, with the idiot being the author. Um, And because at that point, I was trying to find out what else is there? What other examples are there for how you prioritize? And shockingly, other than WDR 93, there were very few published papers that actually gave us a roadmap for how you go about prioritization. I underlined for you some of the elements of this The focus was on the unfortunately named essential services package. I tried to convince Mm -hmm. the secretary of health that ESP has a different meaning, but that was decided to go. Basically it's a package and it was a package of services that were cost effective. And there was an agreement that the majority of the public spending will be spent on that package. And that at least half of the donor money will go to it. You may want to wonder why less donor money goes to the package. I can tell you answers to that in the session if you have specific questions. Finally, two quick um, sort of slides in terms of what's happening. So there's been a lot of work on packages, fantastic work by Amanda Glassman and her team at the Center for Global Development. And Dean may know that the person who started the Center for Global Development in DC used to be his boss and my boss as well. Um, It's a think tank. And what they're doing there, which is brilliant is they have been documenting what countries are doing on these packages and identifying what's still unresolved about it so you know i'm not going to go through the the 10 pieces here but you can see from what i wrote on the slide it's more than economics ethics evidence population comes into it then you have to somehow operationalize it in some criteria health financial protection equity and by the way dean has been working on that so the health financial protection and equity is a new Uh, cost-effectiveness tool that Dean has been working on, which combines all these three, I think it's called extended cost-effectiveness analysis. And then how do you shape it? Do you identify that as a set of services, as disease-focused, as levels of care? How do you bring in and out interventions? What are the rules of doing it? So there's a lot of fantastic operational work still ongoing all the way around the world from this legacy. The last piece here is, a, is, is an interesting work by another colleague of mine, Maria Luisa Escobar, who's Colombian, who had left the bank to work with the government of Colombia in 1992, 93, which did, led to this incredible reform with uh, with the then minister Londonio, who we've also lost since then. And, and then she returned to the bank and was leading the World Bank Institute, the unit I used to lead. And she did something brilliant because of the experience in Latin America, they realized there's an interesting intersection between the economics of a benefits package and the legal dimensions of a benefits package. Because in Latin America, the legal system was being used to do good and bad things to this benefits package. So if you think in terms of this two-by-two chart, anything above the line is that these are services that are prioritized and you can use the legal system like in the red box to ensure that something that's prioritized is actually made available. So that gave the legal system a specific set of issues to say, we have agreed as a government to provide the services and you can go and and, and sue the government if they didn't provide that for you. And that's an enforcement mechanism that we didn't think about it in that, at least I didn't think about it in 1993, that's powerful. But there's a second part in the Roman three, which is a very negative experience where actually there's litigation to blow away the benefits package. And there are examples from Costa Rica, from Brazil and elsewhere, where this incredible um, situation where you have services that are highly cost ineffective in which government was sued and the legal system gave the right to this cost ineffective service. What does that do? It means fewer money, less money is available for cost-effective service. It's a highly, it, it produces terrible outcomes, but it's an intersection between the legal system and the, the economization for the lack of a better term. I will stop here. I had a bonus slide, but I think you guys have more fun things to talk about. than this. So I'll stop here.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: Uh,
0: Dean, um, we're, we're running a little bit late and I see that there are huge numbers of questions but if you could sort of maybe speed up a little bit your final uh, session so we can get to the questions, I think that would be really
1: useful. Sure. Um, A few just reflections on some of the things on the academic and policy side uh, that followed. the WDR and work that continues. Um, One, as I mentioned already, was this um, WHO-initiated look at uh, R&D priorities and how important they were. Uh, In the late 90s, it turned out that several, three or four of the foundations that had been substantially supporting uh, health research for developing countries had all decided that they had stimulated uh, a lot of good work, that they viewed them their roles as, um, as catalytic, and the cat- catalysis had happened and they were all gonna get out. So all these four catalytic organizations decided more or less at the same time that they would be getting out of it because the job had been done. Of course, somebody has to carry on after the catalytic work is done. And so WHO was very concerned about this and um, we worked with them on uh, this approach to both prioritizing um, product development uh, decisions, basic research decisions as best you can, which is certainly not easy. Um, And even more uh, assembling the empirical arguments for the importance of continuing Continuing uh, that work. Um, Larry Summers, um, who's played a, an important role in my intellectual life, um, had gone on to deal for many, many years with other things than health. I mean, he was in the US Treasury under Clinton, became president of Harvard, uh, contra- quite controversial president of Harvard, moved back into the Obama administration. Returned to being a professor at Harvard uh, shortly partway into the Obama administration. Uh, essentially he had two years' leave and he had from Harvard and he had to go back or resign. Um, and uh, about that time, Summers became very re-engaged in the topic of global health. He'd always been interested. Um, So one thing that he had done as president of Harvard is put a fair amount of institutional resources at Harvard uh, into global health and those uh, remain, some of them remain visible uh, today. Um, And uh, I asked him after a conversation with the editor of the Lancet, Richard Horton, uh, I asked Larry if we uh, might do a retrospective on, what had happened as a result, as far as we could tell, of the publication of uh, WDR-93, and what we would say today, today was 2012, uh, in terms of messages that were similar or or different. Um, So Richard Horton, um, as perhaps you know, has been extremely successful long-term editor of The Lancet. He's distinctly uh, to the left politically. Uh, and Summers you know, not only was considered a bit right wing, he was you know, he had some positions or he positions were ascribed to him that made many people on the left uncomfortable to some extent reasonably, though I think not entirely. Anyway, um, Horton wanted a 25th anniversary look at WDR 93. Uh, and, a uh, twenty excuse me, 20th anniversary look at WDR 93. Uh, and, and that's what he'd asked me about taking on, creating one of these Lancet commissions. I said that I would do that, but uh, given the intellectual role that Summers had played in WDR 93, I really wanted at least to explore whether Summers would re-engage uh, with us and, and spend a. A serious block of time. Uh, Horton was concerned because of Summer's uh, reputation as a conservative, but I arranged for us to have lunch together uh, in New York. And Summers is a very abrasive guy a lot of the time. He can also be quite charming when he decides he wants to do that. So he was on his best behavior at that lunch and Richard Horton became very enthusiastic about this commission on investing in health that uh, Summers uh, and I and co-chaired, so we revisited a lot of the issues, and I think probably some of those issues will come up in the in the questions. But the Lancet then published two long reports um, from the commission on investing in health, and um, that um, those have had you know whatever influence they they have had. Um, so that plus a continued um, series of analyses in the disease control priorities um, line of work uh, has occupied a lot of my time professionally over over many years. Uh, Let's just look quickly at the last two slides and then um, uh, turn to the discussion. The the flavor of all this work just remained highly technocratic. Um, This particular slide, it concerns ischemic heart disease and mortality from ischemic heart disease in the world and by region you see on the left, China, Eurasia and the Mediterranean, India, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, high income countries. The question um, that we were addressing uh, was to what extent were there ongoing improvements, uh, that is reductions in uh, mortality uh, from ischemic heart disease, which was already becoming dominant and, or at least extremely important in much of the low and middle income world. And I had gone into this thinking that, you know perhaps slowly, but everything was getting better, uh, that re- mortality rates were, do- were being reduced. And that despite that, the changing demography, the simple growth of populations and the changed age distribution of populations toward older ages were creating headwinds that caused the absolute numbers of uh, deaths from mm-hmm. ischemic heart disease to be increasing. So it'd be a rate of increase. Um, when we then controlled for age distribution and population size and looked at the rate of reduction up to, I think, about um, 2015, I can't see the number myself, oh, 2016. Um, The final column was very different than I had expected. What that shows is the annual rate of change percent per year in um, death from ischemic heart disease controlling for all of the demography. And so a minus sign reflects a negative growth rate improvement. The striking thing in that, to me and one of the, I think defines a lot of the challenge uh, for health systems around the world, um, what is that in the two most populous countries of the world, China and India, the uh, age adjusted mortality rates from IHD were increasing and quite rapidly in China, reasonably rapidly in India. So China, has rightly, I think, been viewed as having had extraordinary success in healthcare. Uh, But this um, uh, points to a set of problems that they really haven't been, uh, I think, still aren't um, addressing. But this gives a flavor of kind of the way we were thinking about things in these commissions. And um, in this particular case, some of the major uh, problems that emerge from the numbers, but don't necessarily emerge at first glance from the numbers you have to uh, play with them a bit. So that's just an illustrative slide. Uh, the next uh, picture um, shows more pages than you ever want to consider um, On the, as publication from the uh, third round of work on Disease Control Priorities uh, publications around uh, 1917, 1918. So volume one is on surgery, maternal and child health cancer. So it reflects a lot of the concerns of dealing with major non communicable diseases and hospital condition, hospital addressed conditions. Um, So there's been continued controversy about it. I'm told, but I don't have any independent judgment of this, that there's only one person in the world who's read the whole thing and I confess it certainly wasn't me, but apparently Bill Gates, um, who reads very, very fast, uh, read the whole thing. So, um, and everybody else who's read it at all has, I'm sure, dipped in and out, or maybe spent a fair amount of time with one volume or another. Um, the work is continuing that's moved um, on disease control priorities from North America to Norway, Norwegian foundations, Norwegian government have been investing heavily for many years in the ethics and economics of priority setting in health. Uh, there's a center at the University of Bergen on exactly that, ethics and priority setting in health, and that center under the direction of um, Ole Norheim uh, is taking on responsibility for a much smaller uh, disease control priorities. Uh, effort over the next two or three years. But again, as with the first three editions, these were all, the first one was very much completely a creation of the World Bank. The next two were published by and in collaboration with the World Bank. Uh, And the World Bank will be uh, closely associated uh, with this uh, fourth round. The current director of health uh, at the World Bank is uh, Former, I, th- I think, health minister in Nigeria, Mohamed Pate, but um, extraordinarily intellectually engaged as a manager, and he's been a uh, pleasure to work with on these uh, on these questions. So there, a lot of this work continues, and uh, those of you that have interest, uh, either in reflecting on it or getting engaged with it, um, happy to stay in touch.
3: So thank you. Uh, for this very comprehensive uh, presentation, and uh, they have raised many questions al- already, so I think we can start with some of them which have to do with the, somehow the, the background, the, the general aims of the WDR report, and especially the, the previous debate Associated with the uh, question of health and financing, and we have here two questions by Valérie and uh, Christopher on the on users fees. Valérie, ask you. Uh, I guess you can see the uh, the question in the in the chat uh, the, there, so I won't read all of them, uh, but recap. Uh, so we, Valérie, asking about the. Uh, World Bank staff and many at WHO continuing to believe that users' fees are a usual instrument. And uh, Abdo started to, uh, to respond uh, uh, about that. But Christopher has enlarged the question on uh, the, the ways in which the, the bank had monolithic commitments to these. Uh, the, and what about and asking about the differences between economists based at headquarters quarters in country health economists or mission staffs, and uh, uh, saying that it seems that the bank had cooled somewhat on user fees a little since the papers by the in 1985 and uh, 1987. I mean, the, which were very much about financing, it, it, so far as I remember, about financing mechanisms. And I would suggest that, beside the specifics about users fees and the the debate of the time regarding the status and the the impact, will you enlarge the the question to that George raised, uh, which is how aware were you of going well beyond the Washington consensus and beyond earlier World Bank positions, and I would link that to, to my own specific question in this respect, which has to do uh, with the changes within the uh, public population health and nutrition uh, division or, or department, regarding this debate about financing. I mean, it's uh, telling us a little bit more, maybe, about the ways in which the, the work associated with the writing of the report uh, displaced discussion within the the PHN division. So, Abdul? Or...
2: Well, I can uh, start with uh, my knowledge of the World Bank since '96. Moving forward, Dean may want to talk about um, a slightly different angle. O- on user fees, uh, Dean will correct me, but WDR 93 was not very positive on user fees. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so it's sort of was the antidote to the 1987 paper, which had put user fees as one of four policy priorities. Um, WDR, I, I remember even interviews Dean was giving during the launch of WDR specifically saying, here were the three objectives of user fees, and in 1993, we're quite sure we're not achieving any of them, and so it's not necessarily an important thing. Moving forward, I was 10 years as a manager at the World Bank. In those 10 years as a manager in two large regions, uh, Europe, Central Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, not once did any of my staff, whether they're field-based or Washington, pushed for, identified, or even mentioned user fees as a priority. And that's part just, I pull whatever hair I have left because since the 1987, pushed by the bank on user fees, the whole academic world, certainly the left side of the academic world, which I like to belong to, I'm I'm very much a left-leaning economist, still says the World Bank is pushing for user fees. Even the comment here says WHO is pushing for user fees. Neither institution has been pushing for user fees for a long, long time. And so I I don't know what else to say. It's just, uh, it's not something that's real, but it seems to live in academia And I don't know what to do about it. Um, I leave to Dean the question about the Washington Consensus. This was way above my pay grade.
1: Well, um, certainly, I think uh, I was quite correct that as we thought about user fees, and we did think a lot about user fees in our work on WDR ninety three. The conclusion uh, was just not to directly contradict the major 1987 paper uh, of the referred to advocating user fees, uh, but to treat the subject with silence. And um, to some extent, replace the question of rationing of services with money uh, to how do you focus um, a benefits package or public resources on the poor and that, you know, one way of doing that is rebating user fees. extremely administratively difficult, close in my view to invisible, Uh, concentrating on geographical areas that um, have a lot of poverty. I think in the end, um, we, without, you know, disagreeing with that completely, concluded that um, focusing on the diseases that were most, uh, that the most affecting the poor. I mean, tuberculosis would be a classic example. It's a, it's a disease that heavily uh, addresses the poor. And so that would be, in our analysis, would have been a strong reason for prioritizing public finance of tuberculosis, partially because it was efficient, lots of deaths averted per million dollars spent, but most of those deaths would be averted in uh, the lower income part of the population. So that was that was really the alternative um, to user fees. On on the bank's um, attitude toward the Washington consensus, the role of user fees, and that um, I was outside the bank at that time in academia, pretty much moved. But I I perceived two extremely different perspectives. One was that the people in the World Bank that actually did the work that. Like I'll do, developed and managed projects, worked closely with countries. That there, were, I hadn't realized do that it was quite so uh, absent. But I certainly would have pictured the user fee story, the private voluntary insurance story, as not on the agenda of World Bank operations. But there are a lot of economists in the World Bank, and they are a more visible face of the World Bank. And I don't think user fees went way that quickly uh, among economists that were uh, still writing about health. So I, I view that as a divergence. Uh, I think there's a question about inconsistencies on health finance across different regions of the bank. I think much more so than on macroeconomic policy where the bank sang, oh, I would say, close to a single tune for a long time. Uh, there is much more diversity on healthcare finance Ultimately, not going back to heavy reliance on out of pocket finance.
3: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Well, we, we, there is another uh, question related to the general perspectives or the aims associated with the reports and the, its relation to uh, general economics, which uh, uh, was asked by Ruth. Saying you mentioned that universalism, universal health care and coverage was or is viewed by some at the World Bank as coercive, in terms of, of the state determining what was universal. And uh, I, well, and she was asking, uh, I didn't really understand your statement, this position, and wonder if you could elaborate on that. And I would link that to another uh, Point you mentioned briefly in your uh, prese- first presentation, Dean, which is about the well, the fact that the WDR report was uh, a strong plea, I would say, in favor of public investment, at least at in, least in, in, in. favor of what? Excuse me. In, in favor of public investment. In health. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so if you you can link it to this question of universalism and uh, public investment and the ways in which this was somehow uh, problematic or resisted within the bank at the time when you were uh, writing the report and uh, because it seems that there were significant debates around these issues. With some uh, some levels of the of the bank. Well, let
1: me take a, a pass at at least part of that. Um, if you wish, the economization uh, of health at the World Bank. And what I think of is uh, one of several misperceptions about uh, WDR 93. Um, much of WDR 93 was basically about what to invest in, how to invest. But there certainly was an argument for about why. And the conclusion of that argument was that it was really quite important to start spending a lot more public money on health and it, investing in health. But it, we quite explicitly were not talking about an investment that would yield returns that were measured in, easily measured in money. Uh, for example, if the bank is investing in an electric, uh, hydroelectric project associated with uh, a new dam. The valuation of the benefits of that project will be first kilowatt hours of power or megawatts uh, at, at different times of the day, perhaps. Uh, and those megawatts would be assigned each a dollar value. And so there would be dollar valued or monetarily valued benefits. And a lot of education projects at the bank were justified in that way. Um, we discussed uh, and quite early on decided that that was not going to be the way we dealt with uh, benefits and therefore the way we dealt with advocacy on health. Um, And there were a variety of reasons for that, but Summers had, among other things, gotten himself in a lot of trouble politically, almost got fired actually, uh, for talking about monetary value of, mortality reduction uh, in an indirect way. Um, So what was the rationale for this investment? Basically, it was that the technology for improving health, the vaccines and the drugs against the big sources of mortality, were extremely powerful and extremely cheap. And people really cared about their health and their children's health. So health conditions, because of that, technological place the world was in, in the late 20th century, in the mid to late 20th century, you could buy far more gain in human welfare by intelligently allocated expenditures on health than you could buy uh, from increasing per capita income. So that in that sense, the welfare gains um, were, not being sufficiently uh, prioritized relative to the welfare gains uh, from investing uh, in economic development, more traditionally defined.
2: If I may, on the universal argument, universality, um, I think what Dean was referring to in his comments was a strong libertarian, Um, uh, sense within the bank's uh, macroeconomics and in high end sort of thinkers about uh, coercing people into something. So there was a pushback early on, at least from what I could see from my very low level, um, you know, being the guy who carries the bag for the team, um, that there was this push uh, about why are you pushing this on everybody. But there's an actually very interesting set of debates that followed in which I actually was aligned with the economist against the public health people. And it it goes around the concept of universal health coverage in the sense that the public health people continuously say two things that have been empirically proven to be incorrect. And unfortunately Dean has even said them once or twice. One. <laughs> There's this sort of crazy concept that investing in health is the same as investing in poor people. Absolutely not true. And there's the second statement, which is slightly less bad, but bad anyway, was that programs for the poor are poor programs. In fact, it was the economists in the bank, even people that Dean and I struggled with, like Jeff Hammer and others, that actually had done fantastic work in East Asia on something called benefit incidence analysis. And that is to identify where the gaps are in this universal coverage. And in fact, arguing that if you keep pushing just universality um, without understanding where the holes are in the system, that you're actually producing more benefits to the wealthiest segments of society away from the poorest segments of society. So many of us since then have worked on the other side of it is to say what we mean by universal health coverage is plugging the holes that relate to the poor. That's why we were very excited when when the WHO came out with their definition of universal health coverage, which two of the three dimensions related to inequality. So that's an interesting lively debate about what do we mean by universal and how do we go about getting to universal? And it included in it something related to user fees some of us have been pushing something which is a negative uh, user fee, which is conditional cash transfers, which started in Mexico, Progresa which actually paid people to seek care. So it's a negative user fee. And it was seen as a way to actually use financing and incentives to get poor people access to services, education, as well as health services. So this universal Argument is quite interesting, but in a very different way than it was when Dean was starting the WDR. It's it's a mm-hmm. it has changed in 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 both directions. That's where I find myself leaning right and not left when it comes to public health. People who keep insisting that um, the poor can take care of themselves if we fund healthcare.
3: Not true. Thank you. Uh, I suggest we uh, switch to a couple of questions which have to do with the, the packages. Uh, so, in a sense, the the way the the, uh, the the fabric of the of this perspective about essential packages and the 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 way of prioritizing that was uh, a part of the of the report. So, the first question is uh, general one, which by non- Nancy. Thomas, who is asking, in the social sciences literature, there has been a lot of criticism of the package approach and the use of uniform protocols for diverse cultures. So how would uh, you uh, counter that criticism? And uh, uh, on issues of uh, the ways in which the cost effectiveness evaluation and the packages were, were, were Uh, assessed or or designed. Manjar is asking, in your work on cost-effectiveness and on packages, was your work informed in any way by histories of health outcomes in European countries? So, uh, and uh, I think we can link that to a very important question that Claudia Long is uh, asking to deal more specifically, why has it taken until very recently that the bank has become interested in depression, although GBD and Dalys have brought out it into to the fore already in the 1990s? And uh, so far as I remember, in the uh, the DCP there was the first DCP. There was a section on mental health, and uh, 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 the uh, the supply of uh, drugs against depression was included in the first essential packages. So, so this is also raising, uh, an, I would say, a very important question, which is about the, the, the various diseases taken into account in, in the packages, and the fact that non-communicable diseases Uh, was viewed as an important uh, innovation and an important uh, 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 legacy of the WDR report. So if you can comment the two of us about these different dimensions of packaging design, sources of information and what's included, what's not included.
1: Maybe I'll let you comment, Abdu, on package design and I could comment on the specific uh, question of psychiatric disorders and uh, intervention against those in the packages. And a little bit of where I see that discussion going now. And yes, it's quite correct that we had uh, a chapter in DCP1 uh, on um, schizophrenia and um, manic depressive illness, I believe. And uh, some of the off-patent drugs are um, not that expensive. and probably work fairly well, though know, I'm inclined to think these days they maybe don't work as well as before. Some of these questions are kind of, um, you know, why things get where they are. Maybe have stories that are not completely intellectual. And on this particular point, my sister is a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, had I failed to pay proper attention to psychiatric disorders in my work, I would have had a little trouble from my sister. But um, the other, you know, as no, noted in the disease burden work, a huge burden um, and partially effective medical interventions and perhaps um, um, non medical interventions. Where I think that discussion, part of that discussion stands today, that hasn't certainly wasn't something we paid attention to and should have been in the World Development Report or in the first disease control priorities, is that of long-term care. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of long-term care is uh, has to deal with uh, declining cognition, Alzheimer's, and related dementias, mostly in the elderly. Um, long-term care for non-psychiatric, uh, non-dementia reasons in the elderly. Um, but uh, dealing with Psychiatric disorders, persistent, strong psychiatric disorders requires, I think, long-term care that is humane uh, but and perhaps doesn't have a high expectation in some cases of um, cure or major regression, but still care and humane and just care Essential. So I see um, in DCP4, I hope we will pay much more attention to humane long-term care and its costs, not as an alternative to using the drugs uh, where they will work. And certainly, uh, that's uh, if the price is okay, that makes a lot of sense. But humane long-term care is uh, really, really important, I think.
2: So there were two questions. One related Do we pay attention to European history. Um, And the second part was on packages. Um, As definitely we did not pay attention or all my uh, professional work at the bank, along with a lot of colleagues, we rarely paid attention to American history because that was the disaster module. We didn't want any country in the world to replicate the American model. We preferred the Canadian. Um, In Europe, this is tricky. Um, and so, for example, let me give you a negative example of not learning from Europe. So the European, um, inter- largest European engagement on health financing relates to labor tax financing through social health insurance. This is uh, Otto von Bismarck in Germany uh, in 1880s, um, taking 600 years of history in Europe of guild-based insurance and then turning it into public policy. This is how social health insurance came to be. What I find frustrating is when European development agencies then go to Egypt and say, oh, let's learn from Europe, and let's start a labor tax social health insurance in Egypt. Egypt, who does not have 600 or even six years history of any kind of health insurance, to take a European 600 years of history and to try to apply it to Egypt or Haiti or Togo or Ethiopia is crazy. So as a general rule, I don't look for high income countries to show me the way for low income countries. And none of my colleagues do, unfortunately, development agencies in Europe and in the US do. So we're constantly fighting Uh, the German agencies pushing social health insurance, the US agencies pushing private health insurance, the worst possible way other than user fees. Uh, And so there's that history, bad history that we're trying to fight on the benefits package or uh, on the package. um, So in the slide I showed you on Bangladesh, which I think should give you a sense of what we tried to do. I think the question was hinting at Are we cutting and pasting from WDR 93 to 28 countries around the world that were implementing benefits package? Um, In general, not at all. In fact, I documented it in my paper, uh, which I put out in 1992, as part of training. I was running training for the World Bank on how to do this. And I showed in it how much time and energy the Bangladeshi population took, or the experts, the thinkers in Bangladesh took to define their own benefits package. And it included um, identifying 18 top technical experts who are all Bangladeshi, who went through voting exercises to try determine what's in and what's out. They used the WDR 93 as a sort of a, a potential way to think about it. They used the data, but they realized That was a global effort that was put together by a few people in a time sensitive way that they needed to customize it. And again, in all my engagements and I've worked on 57 developing countries, nowhere did we ever cut and paste. Nowhere did we ever cut and paste. And so again, I find it strange that there's this perception that this was just taken. Now, in some countries, they took more from WDR3 than than others. And that's their choices. Uh, But as a general rule, those of us who worked in operations did not take the text of WDR as the Bible or the Quran, and we did not just cut and paste. We used it as a way to think, as a way to document, as a way to help countries think through how they can do it. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Uh, A follow-up question on uh, what you, well, related to what you said, Dean, about long-term care, which is this question by Emily Harrison about timelines in the World Bank imagination. Has the bank took on health projects, disease and debility reduction? How fast were projects expected to get underway, to show results? How did time figure into operationalization? And she. And this is also related to what I was alluding to about the uh, non-communicable disease and the shift in the shifting uh, perspective associated with chronic disorders and the the ways this has also inched on the the difficulty to to, uh, to define effectiveness.
1: A couple of reflections on um, time schedule and what, when outcomes can be measured. One observation I made at, about the bank is that uh, people who work in operations, mostly like Obdo, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, must have a pretty long time perspective. takes several years to come to the development with national authorities, national academics, and others, um, a legally sound, technically sound project, takes five or six years to uh, complete it, takes two or three years to look back, draw the lessons, maybe um, carry on with some parts. So I view that as at least a 10-year time uh, frame, whereas in the research community, the economist community in the bank often wants answers out of two or three years. They want to do a research study that shows that um, such and such a program of, let's say, conditional cash transfers, to use Abdo's example, um, had an effect in two or three years. Why two or three years? Because that's kind of the cycle on which academics get judged and promoted, particularly younger academics, as most of the world bank economists, where they, they've got to get their publications out and that, and that means getting this stuff done quickly. And so there's that disjunction Um, And there's a disjunction further between the 10-year time horizon of uh, a World Bank operation and when you might expect it to show effects on uh, health outcomes. Maybe you could see quicker effects on financial protection, I think you could. But to change um, major health outcomes, sometimes you could see that in 10 years or less, um, particularly some infectious disease projects. But if you're looking at a tobacco control project um, and prevention of initiation of smoking, the effect of that on mortality is 60 years away. Um, And the effect of uh, hepatitis B immunization on uh, mortality from liver cancer is 40, 50 years away. Um, So those time horizons need to be built in. Uh, to project design and in the conversations, it isn't particularly easy. And uh, um, But all I would note, I guess, basically, is a, what I perceive to be as a relatively short-term view of the academic economic research in the bank and the longer-term view of World Bank operational staff.
3: Thank you. Thank you this brings in one the uh, complementary question about the the assumptions which were brought into the uh, wDR and uh, especially related to the, uh, the the global burden of disease and the way the well, the two came, came together so far as as I remember in the fabric of the of the report the uh, the global burden of disease result came pretty late, that's why it, it. it, it came, la- came in late, I means you, you got them at, uh, in the final stage of the writing of the report, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and emmanuel Bjorn is uh, asking, uh, uh, can you share with us further insider knowledge around which assumption incorporated into the report GB, uh, GBD-based analyses were most con- contentious. That uh, is, and the differential valuation of life, or CEA that tries sometimes the limited benefits. So, what kind of debates were were taking place at the time of the preparation of the report around the, the GBD, its value, and the the assumption associated with it?
1: Well. Um, The generation of the burden of disease numbers began the attempt to do that right at the beginning of the WDR exercise. It it took a long time and I think it's correct whoever noted we didn't have the results until fairly late in the day to use, we were able to use them. Um, About um, two thirds or three quarters of the way through the project, Summers asked me, how far along was the burden of disease work that we had, he observed, spent a lot of money on? And what was the probability that we would have it in time to use? I said the probability was 0.8, 0.9. Summers looked at me and said, not good enough. Um, And he had ways of making, giving you incentives to make things better. So uh, we did lean on on that team. In retrospect, I think there are lots of things that I don't find um, useful about it, even though, as I showed, I was a co-author of that first paper on burden and disease measured in disability-adjusted life years. Um, The continually shifting way of constructing the DALY and the YLD, the um, disability component of the DALY, that just changes in non-transparent ways all the time. And economists now use a very different dally for cost-effectiveness work than the disease burden people use for disease burden work. So I, in retrospect, think it was a step backward to move away from age-specific mortality rates and a few specific areas, and there are only a few, where there are big chunks of disability, and just to keep track of those separately. But that's, that's not at all what most of my colleagues feel. They, they think trying to do the dally a little bit better is the way to go. I, I would like to see it
3: dropped, frankly. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, so, Martin Gorski is uh, coming back to. Uh, the the macro-level debates at the bank, and the relationship between health and development. Uh, Saying, would it be fair to say there was, is an ongoing macro-level debate at the bank on the relationship between health and development, meaning healthy human capital is a necessary precursor to growth, versus health service have to follow growth, and uh it suggests that the WDR was arguing strongly for the first position, though Abdo's comment around the press and curve slide suggests that debate was still running. So right. so about this uh, well. Uh, so uh, health has a... Uh, no no well, which is about like, uh, so something which has been been very much uh, discussed outside the bank as well, in terms of health as a, as a factor for, for growth or health as a consequence.
2: Right, uh, if I may just give you a sense, I'm a trained econometrician uh, applied to health and labor. So I worry a lot about what you can and what you cannot say with data. Uh, causality is a very challenging thing. Um, so what we know for a fact is that health and economic development are correlated, Preston Curve and everything else has reduced since. Um, Yes, the debate continues uh, and it will continue as far as I'm alive because you can never prove one versus the other. You just cannot. There's not enough uh, national level or even sub-national level data to do a clean econometric analysis that shows you which one came first. But I can tell you the argument I have been using for the last seven years. I looked at all the data available for East Asia. So East Asia is a fantastic region to work because it's famous for what's known as the East Asian tigers. These are a few countries that somehow were able to both improve uh, health outcomes and grow economically. And it did something ridiculously simple I mapped or I graphed economic growth and infant mortality rates and child mortality rates for all these tigers. And something fantastic jumps out. Uh, And that's the argument I've been using within the bank and outside the bank. In every one of these countries, China, South Korea, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, sorry, Malaysia, um, in every single one of them, infant and child mortality rates improvement came before economic growth. So I have a a very non-econometric, but visual way to argue that if it's economic growth that drives it, then somehow these East Asians were so smart, they realized economic growth is gonna happen in 10 years, and then they got the health outcomes first. So in my book, and in these regions, it's very clear Investments in in health came before and those investments in health in many ways led to the production of economic growth. In fact, there's a whole research on population looks at uh, the impact of declines in fertility (laughs) rates on economic growth in these countries and shows something called the demographic dividend, which actually shows that decrease in child mortality, decrease in fertility were precursors to economic growth. And in some calculations accounted to a third to a half of economic growth in these countries. So there is a lively debate. It will always be a lively debate because there's not enough granular data for an econometrician or econometricians to tell you this happened. But for those of us who work in health and population, um, the evidence is fairly strong that investments in health
3: in countries that have achieved both came first. Dean, if you you want to say something about the uh, the dynamics of the debate at the bank? Um, I'm
1: more aware within the bank of the argument about the extent to which income growth or income level affects mortality Uh, rather than the other way around. Um, The effect of mortality or health on uh, income growth, I absolutely agree with the power of the examples where the economic growth has followed uh, the improvements in health. I mean, China is perhaps the most striking example of that, Um, but the other East Asian countries and other countries as well. On the causal relationships in the other way, I've worked on that from time to time. Um, the, my conclusion, but it's I think not quite the standard conclusion yet, is that when you do the econometrics as well as you can, given the major limitations of these cross country uh, time series data. If you do the econometrics as well as you can, you find that the effect of income growth on the rate of decline of under five mortality is much less than a literature of 10 or 15 years ago, including some literature generated for the WDR. That you don't see much effect of income growth or income level on uh, mortality, or at least child mortality. the, that's not true of education. When you do the econometrics right, as I would define it, I'm not an econometrician, uh, you don't see a reduction in the effects of education, don't see much of a reduction. So education kind of stands up uh, as a determinant of health. Income does not. Um, and again, The interpretation I put on it is that it's really a question of Some countries have bought the cheap technologies and invested heavily in the right things. Didn't cost them much. They could do it when it was poor, when they were poor. Um, Other countries didn't. and So you get a huge variation in the rate of decline of underlying mortality. But it's not an income-level-caused variation. I don't think that's that's settled among economists.
3: And we have uh, one more question about the uh, the legacies of, uh, of the of the report. Uh, Manjaria, asking about uh, could you reflect more on the importance of the report and ensuring similar work for Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation? So coming back to the various places where the report were, was taken in you know, or not. Um.
1: There was a major article in the New Yorker or someplace about William Fage, who was a famous um, head of CDC, I think, and public health um, physician, uh, who was a, an early advisor to Bill Gates. So the story I read, and I don't know this personally at all, was that Bill Gates had asked Bill Feige Uh, for some suggestions on what to read about health. And one of the suggestions was WDR 93, uh, which he read and felt uh, convincing. Um, He then had some correspondence with Larry Summers. Summers shared part of that with me uh, a little bit later saying how much the report had influenced his thinking about where the foundation could do the most good with the amounts of money it had. So I I think it's at least plausible that the report, uh, by pointing to the big, the large amount of really low hanging fruit that was out there, uh, influenced uh, the early days in the foundation. Um, Gates has continued to be involved with the disease control priorities, for example. Um, I've been in meetings with him were it just extraordinary the kind of specific details he would pick up out of 200 pages of background, thickly condensed background material. Um, so he, he's picking it up, he's not just skimming it.
3: Uh, well, can I push you a little bit further on this because would, you, do you, well, to some extent one may say that, What has been taken in by the Gates Foundation, the Gates Foundation, or at least advocated, is the the DALIS and the GBD kind of assessment and uh, and, uh, evaluation. But the the way you, the report and the the disease control priorities, try to uh, advocate and provide tools for central planning and therefore, for having uh, an overarching health system-oriented approach involving all sorts of diseases and a comprehensive picture, uh, has not been much at the at the center of what the, the Gates Foundation is doing, or or I'm, I'm mis- mistaken. that uh, the what the foundation has been doing is much more in tune with the. Uh, the, the disease oriented kind of programs that dominate in global health.
1: Let me comment on that. Um, I uh, I can take more time, but I might get interrupted by a call that I'll have to tell her that I'll call her back shortly. So uh, apologies in advance, but I'm, I'm happy to take some, some more time. Um, The Gates Foundation has supported the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington under Chris Murray's leadership um, and supported it extremely generously in terms of the kind of money that goes into demographic and epidemiological research. Uh, They have ended up essentially with no competition. Uh, The quality of their work, and this is a judgment of mine, but others differ, a lot of the quality of their work is poor. Uh, the broad objective of the work, I think, is reasonable. Um, but you don't need to try to redo it every year, every five years. And further, the replicability of their work by others is, let me just say bluntly, they don't let it happen because you can't get their data. Uh, in many cases, some cases you certainly can but for example, I worked quite a bit with a um, person at WHO who deals with Werner disease, and I remember him being asked whether he agreed with the estimates of more maternal mortality that were then coming out of the IHME. And he said, well, he didn't know whether he agreed or not. He, the World Health Organization, had explicitly asked the IHME for the data on which they could form an independent judgment about those numbers and he wasn't able to get it WHO wasn't able to get it mm. uh, so they they have a monopoly position and are not easily challenged uh, because of uh, both the monopoly and also the maintenance of closed data sets and you know that's why the journals let that happen I mean I thought it was a Prerequisite for publication in scientific journals.
2: That the I hope you've asked uh, Horton at Lancet Dean why that. Is. Have, I've
1: asked him. You know, to tell you the truth, I, he gets a lot of heat for the publication of. You know, I just got in the mail the Lancet with that thick, of. You know, the exact number of deaths from myocardial infarction in nineteen um, ninety-eight in Rwanda. I mean, it's just a fairy tale, um, and um, why Horton publishes that, I don't know. I think it's actually benefited me because Horton's got so much criticism for that. It's, and let me say, it's pretty well understood in this business that uh, Chris Murray and I don't get along. Um, so Horton, I think, has lent a, bent over a little bit backwards on publishing the disease control priorities work to attend. I don't, I don't know if that's true. Uh, But uh, he's certainly been very supportive uh, of the disease control priorities, and in most ways I find it reasonable. I simply don't understand why the journals let them get away without making the data available. I just don't get it.
3: So thank you so much for this very rich conversation. Uh, George, do you want to say something?
0: Um, I just wanted to ask Dean, Just it's, it's a really personal question, but in terms of my own research, but how did, you, how did you end up becoming the lead author of the ad hoc report on health research?
1: Um, I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but it certainly would have involved my having strong Intellectual relations with Jim Tulloch and Tori Godall. Tulloch was at the time head of maternal and child director for maternal and child health at WHO, and uh, Tori Gadol was director of the tropical disease research program at WHO, and I had served uh, from time to time on their advisory committee. Uh, they were both unhappy with the kind of discussion of R&D priorities coming out of the relevant part of WHO, they were very unhappy about the situation that I described earlier, where um, three or four of the foundations providing major support for mostly tropical disease research, but other uh, were simultaneously deciding that their catalytic role was over. So Tulloch and... um, Goodall were very concerned about that. And um, I think we must've had some conversations over dinner. I, I don't quite know what happened, but they uh, they ended up finding some money to establish a commission. We had, a, you know, we had three R&D com- uh, pharmaceutical company vice presidents, and um, people that kind of knew a fair amount about the development process. Um, uh, Goodall knew a great deal about it. I think Goodall was concerned that there was not sufficient attention to the power of private sector capacity and the capa- and the ability, if you played the private sector right, to get a lot of freebies from them. And he, he certainly spent a lot of time at that and he was well acquainted with the senior R&D people at quite a few of the big uh, drug companies. Um, so that's a non answer, but it kind of describes the context anyway.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, thank again, you. They, they were both they were actually both co authors uh, of, of, of that uh, report, if I remember correctly, and they both represented special programs at the WHO, which meant that they were used to having extra budgetary funding that that was not WHO uh, funding. So they represented a very particular element within the WHO?
1: Well, I think that uh, uh, I'm, I don't know the numbers for sure. I think that's probably much more correct for Godal and the Tropical Disease Research Program uh, and that the Child Health Program was probably better integrated. Yeah. Uh, both of them were longtime WHO officials. Uh, but to get back to a bit of the question about uh, Gates and relatively vertical programs or disease-specific investments in new products and implementation, things like GAVI. or Definitely there's a, a strong flavor of concern with specific diseases in the disease control priorities work in the WDR 93. It's a way of thinking that I'm very sympathetic to, that Larry Summers is very sympathetic to, uh, that many of our colleagues are not sympathetic to, but to return to Gadol and uh, Jim Tulloch, very definitely, they're they're kind of very technocratic people, and uh, that and that was certainly the flavor of what they were trying to get, as I read it, what they were trying to get out of uh, that report, that that working group.
0: Okay, well, our time has been passed. Has passed. Yeah. I, I I really I I want to thank Dean and Abdo for being extremely generous with their time uh, and with their memories and for being so thoughtful uh, and somewhat self-critical about, you know, their careers. It's uh, it's a very refreshing thing uh, to hear people like you talking uh, about your work in the past. And I would note in passing, um, I think that um, WDR 93, I I agree totally with Abdo, has been misinterpreted countless times uh, by countless people. And I think, um, you know, getting a better understanding of what was actually said in the report Mm -hmm. as opposed to to what was attributed to it is I think um, a very, very useful and a very, very helpful thing. So I, I really would like to thank you very, very much for your cooperation. Um, And I hope we can continue this